Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Alex, this sounds exciting to me. It's like a breaking news episode that I've never done before. So uh, normally, you know, I, I, in July and August, I don't really record or publish many episodes, um, but I feel like last week, you know, some interesting uh, media articles came out and we're going to think it's worthwhile to discuss them just for both our providers and our patients' sake. And in order to discuss this, I'm very excited to bring back Dr. Alex Perlman, from Vanguard Gastroenterology. Uh, Alex is a, is a friend of the show and a, a colleague of mine uh, from our Yukon days together. And Alex now practices primarily in Manhattan. Uh, Alex, thank you for the time today. Um, we're going to talk PPI and dementia. Neil, thanks so much for having me back. Chatting about all these papers sort of takes me back to sitting in our continuity clinic uh, and so it's a nice chance to refresh and sort of do a not quite journal club, but sort of just talk about what's new in the world of PPIs and dementia. Yeah, I feel like, you know, that's an interesting point. I think even in those journal clubs, you know, close to what is that uh, five, six years ago, longer, uh, this had come up before. And I think this is something that comes up every so often. So, Alex, why don't you for our non-medical listeners kind of discuss the recent paper that came out in neurology discussing proton pump inhibitors, and the risk of dementia. Absolutely. So as, as you know, I, I may have said to you before, and I'll say again that we're, we're not going to make this a full episode, but realistically just take a quick uh, twi- quick thousand yard st- view at, uh, at the paper and sort of what the lay media ran with and what it means for us. So proton pump inhibitors for those non-GI folks are medications used for acid suppression as well as other multiple indications. And there's been a lot of uh, background noise that has come and gone in the last 10, maybe 15 years about do they have significant adverse effects for our patients who are on them, whether in the short term or in the long term. Now, last, I, I want to say last Wednesday, a pretty major journal in the in neurology, and it's actually titled Neurology, came out with a retrospective review of a cohort. That cohort was something that we that's referred to as ERIC or atherosclerosis risk in community study. And looks at a bunch of patients, a bunch of risk factors, and tries tries to extrapolate some things, whether GI, cardiovascular, et cetera. And what this particular uh, set of data were reviewing patient use of proton pump inhibitors, the duration of use, and whether or not there was any association with uh, the development or diagnosis of dementia, which is cognitive decline, and in, in later stages, actually significant impairment. And the big tagline that came out in the media is cumulative dose of PPI use for greater than 4.4 years associated with an increased risk of nearly 30% of developing dementia. And the lay media sort of ran with that association without necessarily taking a step back and saying in normal parlance association may may imply a causative relationship where in basic biostats, association is just association. It does not mean that something is causing another thing. It means that these things seem to be occurring together. That sort of classic one is right, ice cream and drowning going together in the summer. And there's an association, but obviously eating ice cream does not actually cause drowning, but rather the fact that both happen more frequently during hot weather. And so that that was sort of the big tagline that everyone has been running with. What's your experience been with patients? I mean, are they calling? Are they are you getting a lot of messages with a lot of concerns? 
We we did. We are. So um, interestingly, I think it was Thursday morning. Um, one of the tasks we, we put out was, um, at least in our practice here in Connecticut, was we put out a, you know, I put together a statement to send out to all our front end um, staff, our, our administrative assistants, our uh, to let them know that, hey, we're aware of this. The patient's called. This is what, you know, we, we the, the practice is aware of. We're talking to the national societies. And what I stress in that statement and what I would stress now is that in general, you know, we always strive to put people on the lowest dose of any medication necessary. And I think it's important to review every medication with your provider at frequent intervals to, to determine, is that medication still necessary? And I think that's the same with proton pump inhibitors. Um, I know me and you have discussed it before, and we've had episodes on the show before as well, that proton pump inhibitors, it's again, this is a discussion you want to have in conjunction with your provider, either your primary care provider or a gastroenterology provider. And one of the reasons you want to have the conversation is you can't just simply stop your proton pump inhibitor. You're going to get rebound symptoms. You're going to get worsening disease possibly. And two, there's some indications that you really need to be on a proton pump inhibitor for. Once you get rid of that noise, there may be a large percentage of patients who probably don't need to be on proton pump inhibitors. And my take home from last week was, again, I think this is an opportunity for us to guide our patients again and reassess every patient. Do you still need to be on a proton pump inhibitor? And it was less for me, this study specifically in this new risk, because again, as we'll discuss, we've, we've been through this before, but more taking the opportunity to learn and really comb through every patient on the medication and determine if they still need to be on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a great perspective to think about. And, you know, going back to all our society guidelines, they all say, right, lowest effective dose. And they all say, do we need it? And how long do we need it for? I mean, this paper honestly did a good job trying to highlight some of those uh, limitations of the study. And again, saying that this is not the answer of, yes, PPIs cause dementia. If you take PPIs for 4.4 years, no matter what you do, you're going to get dementia. That is not the intent of this paper. And that's really not what they were going for. Unfortunately, that's what the media ran with. And we, we've seen this, whether it was some things with kidney disease, some things that we've seen with dementia, we've seen some of this with atherosclerotic disease and sort of cardiovascular events and PPIs. And always what's what seems to bear out in the actual larger studies or more prospective studies is that once you account for a lot of the uh, co uh, confounding uh, factors, when you account for uh, data in terms of uh, heterogeneity and things like that, oftentimes those relationships really fall to the wayside. And it's not to say that there isn't a possibility or even a plausibility, but really the intent should be to better clarify that a possibility exists with any medication. Right, There is no safe medication with zero adverse effects. And so we need to be cognizant of what you said. Yeah. And Alex, I want, I want to stress what you said. I think right around, yeah, there's no safe medication. Nothing comes for free. I tell my patients that all the time. Um, and then the, the different risks you mentioned, you know, I typically call it PPI baggage. Um, and those are out there. And I think some of the numbers that this paper put out are, are frightening numbers, right? 4.4 years is not that long. 30% increase seems significant. Uh, but I think going back to what you said, I think we need to stress to our listeners that this is not a causation study. It was, you know, like you said, it's a retrospective, which means looking back and asking patients. I think they ask patients once a year, if I'm not mistaken, if they're still on a PPI or not. And, you know, it's, it's a, and the paper wasn't trying to say, if you take a PPI, you get dementia. It was just saying that a lot of patients on PPI some of them had this possibility. And I, I always tell patients sometimes too, it's like, 
you take a whole stadium football stadium worth of people and you know if some percentage of them are on the medication some percent of them will have some side effect it may not be the medication's responsibility but it's just the numbers are the numbers right and it's going to be out there yeah, I mean, I, I think the important thing is, you know, a lot of these studies, whether it's this one or, or other association studies that have come out in the realm of PPIs, really what we end up seeing is there's a lot of confounders, right? There's a lot of folks who have other disease states, they have other medications they're using that may be, again, a surrogate for polypharmacy that we know is an actual association, also another association with the development of dementia and possibly a risk factor for uh, so in these folks, what they did essentially is they, they formed this cohort and they had multiple visits and then yearly visits. They had medication evaluation, both with patient recall, as well as actual visual inspection uh, with trained staff. They had a physician making the diagnosis of dementia. And really what they ended up delineating is zero to 2.8, 2.8 .8 to 4.4 4 or 4.4 and greater years in terms of use. And what they saw is that increased risk. Now, if you look at some of the things that they they try to control for, they they really did attempt um, in all good faith to try to get get the best, cleanest uh, data set. It still doesn't account for all the things that we know seem to be confounders. I think the other thing that I was a little bit disappointed in the lay media, not in the authors of this paper, who I think did a good job, is in just a month before that, actually, excuse me, two months before that, in gastroenterology, which is one of our major journals, Dr. Um, Andrew Chan and his ex expansive team from Harvard and from Mass General, excuse me, from Harvard and Mass General, actually put out a very similar paper, except it was, I think, even better quality because this was actually a prospective cohort. This was the ASPRI cohort, which is looking at adults and specifically was uh, aspirin in reducing events in the elderly. And they looked for a lot of these confounders. They looked for these relationships. They did uh, both dementia diagnosis, Alzheimer's dementia diagnosis, cognitive decline diagnoses, and they actually did not demonstrate any relationship. The thing that I think was also interesting is specifically in that gastroenterology paper that I'm referencing, Dr. Chanadol, um, that paper actually even subdivided different PPIs into their generations. And we know that different generations and different actual PPI strengths are varied across different medications, right? We know pantoprazole, Protonix, uh, as, as, its, um, as its brand name, is actually one of the weaker ones where we know that things like Nexium or Esimeprazole is actually much more potent. And so when one paper concludes that a 4.4-year cumulative dosage is associated with dementia, did it matter if it was pantoprazole, emeprazole, esemeprazole, ribibrazole? And so all of those things, again, go back to the confounders. And at least in this prospective trial of thousands of patients that was published in gastroenterology in June, they didn't demonstrate any relationship. Now, it's not to say, again, that it's not there, but it goes back to the conversation of individualized patient care, seeing if it's proper and if it's needed, and if it is needed, lowest effective dose that we could get to. Yeah, Alex, and I think that's you know a great point by the Gastroenterology Journal. Um, if you take it a few years back, I think there's a big JAMA paper, which is again in one of those prominent journals uh, that talked about PPI and dementia, and they, I believe that the correlation, the causation, wasn't there. I think there was also a large, again, retrospective data set out of Sweden. The JAMA one was out of Germany and then out of Sweden too, that again, tried to answer this question. And I remember back then, I think it was, I want to say 30,000 patients and they could not find a causation um, I or yeah, I correlation. I think the German one had some kind of association, possibly if I were thinking of the same study, but it was a little bit smaller. And again, the, when it was broken down to a more prospective approach, 
failed to document any significant actual correlations or causative relationships. You're right. Exactly. Exactly. So again, the, the cost. So, so, you know, I, I think t- to summarize the the papers that we've had over the past, you know, you know, five, 10 years, there, there, there may be correlation. Um, you know, there may be correlation, maybe like I said, it's polypharmacy, maybe there's more to the story. Uh, but there is not causation as far as we know. And when they've done prospectively, like the gastro paper from a few months ago, the causation wasn't there. Um, that being said, like you've said, and I've said, you know, we want all our patients to be on the least amount of PPI necessary. And we want to be on PPIs when it's necessary. And I think maybe we should just quickly talk about when it is absolutely necessary to remain on PPI. Um, and, you know, so I, it, go on. Well, so I, th- I think what I would say is, I think part of the PPI story that gets uh, gets people on forever medications, I think we sort of have to lay blame at ourselves. So the reflux uh, di- diagnostic criteria, I think this was from 2006, the Canada uh, definition, which is essentially the typical reflux symptoms meant you got reflux, you got a PPI, you felt better, you have reflux. And then when you try to come off and you have rebound, you stay on reflux medications forever. So I, I, I do want to lay that at our own feet. But I think since then, we've actually, and when I say we, I mean the societies and folks much smarter than myself and much more scientifically inclined than myself, have put out wonderful guidelines to talk about uh, PPI de-escalation, talk about when we should be treating people longer term, shorter term, when we should be doing pH testing. So in my practice, generally speaking, in terms of the reflux patient, my approach is simple. You come in without alarm features, you're getting eight weeks of PPI, and then you're getting weaned off. You get weaned off because a small fraction of folks do have rebound, and I don't know who's going to be that person. If I wean you off and you're still symptom-free, I think we're done with the conversation. Whatever it is that was causing it seems to have abated. Now, you're using those eight weeks and that weaning period to make some lifestyle changes, to go away from the highly carbonated beverages, the close to uh, bedtime eating and things of that nature. I often do recommend diaphragmatic breathing, things like that as well, to help decrease the likelihood that your symptoms will persist. If they do persist, I will often say, I want to do an endoscopy off PPIs to confirm, do you have erosive reflux disease? So if I look down there and it looks super inflamed, you need a PPI and it will work on the lowest effective dose. If it looks normal, I will often advocate that we do pH testing and we have good data to support. pH testing helps differentiate between people with non-erosive reflux disease, meaning pathologic acid exposure, who should be on acid suppression, and those people who have either esophageal hypersensitivity or functional heartburn. Now, these are entities where your enteric nervous system may be misinterpreting things that are happening. Maybe it's not actually acid that's refluxing up into your esophagus. And so you're not really going to respond to PPIs in the first place, but you will carry with you the risk of exposure too. So that's usually going to be my reflux patients. Now, there are folks who have diagnostic evidence of Barrett's esophagus, which is a pre-malignant condition for for developing esophageal cancer. Those people, I do believe, should be on PPIs long-term, and I think the risk-benefit is generally in the favor of the PPI, and often patients will agree. Then there's a subset of patients who have had prior ulcer-related bleeding who still require long-term NSAIDs or long-term aspirin for secondary prevention for cardiac events. And I think they actually may benefit um, from some prophylactic uh, PPI or at least Pepsid, which is uh, famotidine or another form of acid suppression. Finally, there's the folks that make up a good chunk of my patient population, which is patients suffering with eosinophilic esophagitis. 
And these folks do need asset suppression if they have a reflux component, but separate from the asset suppression part, we need to suppress the eosinophils to prevent progression of disease that will ultimately often lead to fibrosis, stenosis, and possibly difficulty with getting adequate nutrition. And this is just at least a subset of my population that comes to mind when I think of folks who need to be on PPIs and why I keep them and how we discuss it. Yeah, I know. I think you hit all the key points there. I mean, when I did an episode uh, last year about PPI and downscaling and tapering off, you know, esophageal mucosal disease, you know, anything that's wrong with the lining of your esophagus, Barrett's, erosive esophagitis, eosinophilic esophagitis, I believe those patients need a proton pump inhibitor. They may be the lowest dose, but they need a proton pump inhibitor. Ulcer disease, again, if the lining is messed up and you heal the lining, you may need a proton pump inhibitor. Um, I And I think we, we're saying the same thing here. If you don't fall, if you're a patient, you don't fall into one of these categories, you know, and you don't have an absolute indication for a PPI, but you've yet not tried to come off of PPI, you need to talk to your provider. I think it's not like an antibiotic course. Um, there's no defined period of time if you don't have one of these conditions. And so, you know, if you have talked to your provider, you're ready to come off your PPI, you know, first you lower your dose, go twice a day, once a day, 40 milligrams, 20 milligrams, and see what the lowest possible dose is. And I think that's something we do irrespective of last week's study or prior studies, I think try to get the least effective dose, unless again, you meet one of these conditions where you need a proton pump inhibitor. Yeah. I mean, I, I think exactly as you're saying, I, I think we're not doing enough pH testing is, is the sense I'm getting. And I get that nobody wants to have an extra endoscopy with a wireless pH study or even a non-endoscopic, but a catheter-based test. You know, a few years ago, there was conversation about mucosal impedance, where you would do a regular endoscopy and use a probe to check the impedance of the mucosa that can help you define if the person does or doesn't have reflux. And I'm sure AI at some point will come into this conversation if, if if it's going to be able to detect someone having reflux or not. But I think it's important because if we're just using that old Canadian definition, it captures a whole bunch of people with true reflux. And I don't disagree with it. The problem is it also captures a whole lot of people who don't actually need long-term PPIs. And that's where we end up in this, in this sort of situation where we have people who've been on this for 20 or 30 years without actually a clear indication to begin with. And then every time one of these studies comes out and whether it's a true relationship that they are identifying, or if it's a confounding relationship, or if it's just a, maybe a blip in the data, it's still going to give somebody cause for alarm. It's going to make patients nervous. It's going to make physicians nervous. It's going to make prescriptions. Uh, any prescriber nervous, you know, thinking that you were intending to benefit the patient and you may have somehow caused harm that you can't reverse. Alex, I think, you know, absolutely right. I think that term reflux is very broad. And then, you know, maybe your point with pH testing or AI, maybe there's an AI feature in Sentinel endoscopies where we can truly differentiate acid versus non-acid reflux versus hypersensitive esophagus will help us better triage who needs acid suppression therapy from the get-go. Um, Alex, this has been great. I think I'm hoping our listeners are the patients who are listening today who read the articles. This has given some information. If it has not, all I want you to go home with is if you're on a proton pump inhibitor, talk to your provider, get on the lowest dose you can get on unless you meet one of these apps indications. And either way, it should be a conversation with your, your provider. Um, and I think that's helpful with any medication, including proton pump inhibitors. And if I may give a plug to our colleagues who are the gastroenterologists, 
there's some limitation in the communities, at least where I practice about doing pH testing. There's no harm in reaching out to colleagues who do pH testing to help de-escalate some of these patients and actually get them on things like TCAs or things that may help with their actual functional heartburn or esophageal hypersensitivity symptoms with the intention, again, being helping the patients get off the med or making sure that we have good reason and give them reassurance that the risk-benefit ratio favors staying on. I, I think that's a, that's a great tip. Um, and, you know, when you do talk to those people who do more neurogastrology, pH and penis testing, you will find a lot of value in de-escalating PPI therapy there as well too. And again, finding patients who absolutely need to be on a PPI and staying on a PPI as well. So Alex, thanks so much for um, this information, especially because we, you know, planned this uh, last minute given last week's uh, news break. And I look forward to having the show in the future. Thanks so much. Always fun coming back. Look forward to coming back another time.